Green Team Academy podcast episode 74. Tune in to this episode to hear how I would rewrite the script for Michael Moore's new movie, Planet of the Humans. And before we get into that, I just want to say if you are someone who wants to make a bigger difference for the planet, you want to figure out how to make a bigger impact fast, then head over to greenteamacademy.com. Start with the free Green Team Essentials to find the 12 most common yet avoidable Green Team mistakes and all kinds of free trainings and you can check out other podcast episodes um, and all kinds of good stuff to help you on your way as well as my upcoming book, Climate Action Breakthrough, that will be available in June 2020. So you can sign up to be part of my advanced reader crew. All right, so with that, let's get started. Hey, green team, what is up? Oh, wow, it's just always so nice to be hanging out with you. And I know a lot of folks have tuned in to the new movie by Michael Moore, uh, narrated by Jeff Gibbs. Uh, The movie is called Planet of the Humans, and you can watch it for free on YouTube. The movie is very controversial, and I'm going to leave links to some of the analysis by some other folks, including a really thoughtful response from Bill McKibben. Um, And to me, it feels like, I don't know, I can't really pin pin down an analogy that makes sense, but it's something like a kid throwing a temper tantrum, but but what the kid is upset about is something real or you know somebody driving a bulldozer into a parade because what the parade is celebrating is not worth celebrating so it's it's like that kind of thing where there is something that needs to be addressed but just the way that it was done in this movie it it really focused on attacking the environmental movement without really attacking all the obstructionists and climate deniers and fossil fuel industry. Um, so it's, it's a little bit puzzling. Um, I was, uh, I was in contact with somebody who was watching it the other day and I was just getting these (laughs) one text after the other. Oh my God, what is he doing? Oh no. (laughs) And it's like, it's that kind of a movie where you're, it's, it's just, pretty hard to describe but basically I hope that you'll watch it first and and then listen to the rest of this podcast what what I think happened with Michael Moore and Jeff Gibbs is that you know there's a saying that Einstein has is attributed to Einstein that says you can't solve a problem with the thinking that created it and that's actually a big point that they're trying to make is that the industrialization of society created this this dependency on fossil fuels and this way of working that has degraded our environment. And so they're saying that if we turn to industrialized solar and wind, that is not the answer and that we need to look at the population. And one line in there was, we have too many people using too much stuff too fast. And so that line right there, that is true. That is great. Um, but 
but there's a lot of the problem with the film there's a lot of problems with the film but one of them was that he also threw in a lot or they I guess also threw in a lot of incorrect information like they said the lifetime of a solar panel is 10 years well that's just not true <laughs> the the guaranteed degradation is that at like 35 years it's still going to be I think 85 90 percent of its uh, production capacity so 35 to 50 years would have been a better number and that's just one example and then they also went after a lot of the champions of people that have been saying man this climate change is an issue and we need to come together and do different things like Bill McKibben and Al Gore and you know there are things that everybody has done wrong, but I mean, I always think if Al Gore had been elected instead of Bush, we probably wouldn't be in this horrendous situation that we are now. Um, and so, so anyhow, that whole thing, my, my interpretation of what happened is that, um, that Michael Moore and Jeff Gibbs, their thinking is part of the problem they're also this this attack and blaming and uh singling people out and their thinking is part of the same thinking that caused the problem and that's why they don't know they don't know the solution and so they didn't talk about the solution and here's here's a tip i I do a lot of um, coaching. I help people create um, webinars where they they show somebody some they give some free training and then they encourage that person to sign up for their coaching or course or whatever it is they're trying to promote. Um, but there's a rule when you're doing something where you want to lead people through a transformation, and the rule, the the simple way that it was broken down for me by Dr. Angela Loria, who has the company, the author Incubator, um, who I'm working with to do my book. But the simple way you do a presentation like that is you break it into thirds, where the first third talks about the problem and the dream come true. So this is what is happening now? What is that person? What did people want to see? The middle third is where you teach and then the last third is where you talk about the solution and that you give the call to action. And so if I was Michael Moore's editor on this project, that's what I would have set up. The way he did it was a poor job of the first two parts and the last part is missing of those three parts. So I'm going to give you my interpretation of what I think would be a great uh, film outline for doing something like he I think was trying to do so okay so the first part I mean I've been thinking of writing a book called wake the fuck up and I think the first part that he did was he was trying to shock people and wake people up and so I agree with his his uh his desire there I don't think he did a good job of it but but definitely the the points I would make in that first part is the environmental movement has failed. Me personally, I'm 59 years old. My name's Joan Gregerson, founder of Green Team Academy. Might have skipped that earlier. I'm 59 years old. 
I have seen the environmental degradation. I have dedicated my life to, I first was an engineer, I worked in energy efficiency, renewable energy, sustainability. Um, that was my initial uh, work. And all that work, and yet, and working with other people who cared, we have overseen the most massive degradation of the planet other than asteroids or ice ages. So the, what we've been doing has failed. We, we have categorically failed. And this is really important for people to understand. So the population, the average wildlife populations um, of fish, birds, mammals, amphibians, reptiles is now 40% of what it was in when I was 10 years old in 1970. So that's, I mean, there's an area where we failed. Human population has more than doubled, but the wildlife population is 40% or less now. Coral reefs, in the past 30 years, the, the amount of uh, thriving coral reefs is now half what it was just 30 years ago. And coral reefs are the, the bedrock, uh, literally, of, of our ecosystems because the oceans are, the, are so important to making everything work and coral reefs, they protect the, the coast from erosions, they're the nurseries for all this diversity of fish and everything that's happening in the oceans. So there's an example. Another one is that our plastic produce, production, which was very minimal, started around 1950 or so, um, is now the annual plastic production, the weight of it is roughly equal to the weight of the human population every year. So yeah, we have failed. And that is, that is the, that's the, the number one thing that we need to be talking about. So I didn't even, did I mention climate change? I don't think I've mentioned climate change. Um, I just saw a tweet come through that yesterday, so this is May 4th, yesterday was the highest ever level of um, CO2 at the Mauna, the Mauna Loa um, uh, test measurement site. So our, and in 2019 was the highest ever carbon emissions produced. So we don't have this thing under control. It's what we've been doing is not working. That is, we need to start with that exact fact. So, okay, so we're still in the first third of the movie, right? So the, the first thing is that what we're doing is not working. And the, the dream, what we want, what we want is to live in harmony with nature. What we want is to find a way that one generation does not decrease the opportunities for the next generation. We don't want our generation's actions to limit the ability of the next generations to, to thrive. We want to get to a point where each generation provides a more resilient, more beautiful, more equitable future for the next. And so far, that hasn't been happening. So that's, 
that's what I would say in that first part. And, and yes, the promise has been that we can just build our way out of it by building more solar and more wind. And so that was, that is, that's what I would do in the first third of the movie. Okay. So now we're moving into the next third of the movie where this is the teaching part and examining in more depth what the things that we need to know. So here's the number one thing I would say that we need to know is that the reason, one of the main reasons that the environmental movement has failed is because it has continued this industrialized thinking. And that, that thinking is wrapped up, another way to say it would be colonized. And we had a ton of speakers that talked about this on the Earth Week Summit, the 2020 Earth Week Summit. You can go to earthweeksummit.com and go and uh, listen to all those speakers. But the, the point is that we have a, we have systemic racism, systemic patriarchy. I mean, look at the, the candidates for, for the presidency of the US. It's old white males. And so this thing of the white supremacy of the increased income inequality. Um, if you haven't watched the uh, Robert Reich, R-E-I-C-H, film, Inequality for All, he's an economics professor that details that, how the income inequality has worsened over the past few generations. So these systemic problems of racism and patriarchy and colonialism of operating on with stolen people on stolen lands and this extraction uh, mindset and a non-circular a linear economy like let's make plastic sell it and then just bury it like that is not that's not a circular economy that's not regenerative and so the I think the number one thing that that I feel like was not really articulated well in the movie was that it is these um, oppressive systems that are perpetuating the problems that we've had all along and that they're perpetuating the environmental catastrophe that is happening that's we're seeing it right now with the coronavirus, how it's, it's hitting the people, communities of color and those who are in more vulnerable, um, have more vulnerable health issues. And it's, you know, it's an inconvenience for the, the people of privilege. So white communities, more affluent communities, and it's dire and deadly for people that are homeless or um, you know, lots of different communities, Native American communities that are not getting the basic support that, that other areas are. So these systems of oppression that have existed for a long time are, are at the root of why we have not been able to make progress with, in the environment. 
So ideas like we're going to recycle our way out of it, or we're going to build more solar panels or more turbines, that's not going to work because the people that are in power are going to find a way to to make uh, to make money off of it and continue the the oppression, and so that is, I think, one of the key things that that the movie was trying to get at and did get at in some regards. But what the part that that wasn't brought to light is is this holistic thinking. Um, yes, they said that we like we as the U.S. and these more developed countries, but especially the U.S., consume way more than is sustainable. And the idea that we can just not change our lifestyle and figure out ways to support the current lifestyle, that that idea that we can continue this lifestyle and keep the planet healthy, that's completely unworkable. So we definitely need to change our lifestyle and in a very big way. In the 2019 Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, which was a global assessment published in May 2019, they are saying, through transformative change, nature can still be conserved, restored, and used sustainably. This is also key to meeting most other global goals. Transformative change. By transformative change, we mean a fundamental system-wide reorganization across technological, economic, and social factors, including paradigms, goals, and values. This is what the movie was getting at. We can't continue with the lifestyle that we have and just try to meet it with technology. And you know, an example that I have of that is as a wellness coach, um, and as somebody who has gained a lot of weight a couple times, so 35 pounds overweight, I went into um, Weight Watchers and stepped on the scale. And after I stepped on the scale, they said, would you like to buy some of our processed food, basically? They didn't use those words. But instead of saying, hey, have you, here's an apple, instead they were pointing me to the industrialized food which was and the marketing which was the reason that one of the reasons that i gained weight in the first place and so i think that is a that's kind of a good analogy for for what they're pointing out is that us trying to focus on big solar and big wind as our way out has some flaws Another weakness in our current approach is the absence of holistic thinking. This holistic thinking that indigenous cultures have practiced for millennia, there really was no other way to live, right? It, had, it was holistic. People were in touch with nature before with the rhythms and the, the boundaries and the limits of their place before because that's the only way that we had to live for thousands and thousands of years and that wisdom got got subjugated to this idea of technology solving things and I know personally so in my own trajectory I was really interested in the environment from a very young age my father was a petroleum engineer 
And so I started working for him at about age 10, plotting oil and gas production curves and saw how after you get the data plotted, you draw it out to zero. And so I understood, like, this is not a regenerative cycle. This is a finite extraction thing. And I was asking him at a very young age, at age 10 or so, what are you doing? What's, and he said, yeah, I'm talking to people at work about this. So I, I thought the adults would make a change. That idea of big solar and big wind came early to me. So 1978 is when the Solar Energy Research Institute was opened and Jimmy Carter came out and um, and commemorated the place and was putting solar panels on the White House. I have to say this was you know pretty small scale. He was putting on solar hot water panels, which is a pretty low tech system. But that got me excited about if I want to address pollution, like I had written a poem about pollution when I was 10 years old that got published. But if I want to address this, that I need to go into engineering, that's what I, I said, I want to study solar. They said, we don't have it. So they said, we'll go into engineering. So I went into engineering to try to fix the environment, um, to try to protect the environment. And, and so what, but what I saw, it, it was just so crazy because one of the courses that I took when I was going through engineering was passive solar design. And <laughs> this was before we had personal computers. My sister and I were both in the, the class at the same time in two different campuses. And we both purchased um, an HP programmable calculator because what we did was we evaluated different designs and you would look at how the the sun angle hit the building so throughout the year was was it going to require energy or was it going to be able to maintain itself and and then when i went to uh, mesa verde in colorado and saw this place where this these ancient civilizations were living that was a perfect passive solar design, I got it. I got it that if you have a big overhang on the south side, that in the winter when the sun angle is low, it comes right in and then the thermal mass, if it hits that that rock face and it charges that up, and then at night that heat comes back off and it keeps the people very comfortable and then in the winter when the sun angle is high the that same overhang stops the sun from hitting and so that space in there stays very cool because it's connected to the ground and it's not getting charged up by the sun so that is that is working in harmony with nature and that's the holistic thinking that that honors the wisdom of the indigenous cultures who have been learning the patterns of the sun and the stars and when's the best planting and learning the ways of nature and how to be in relationship with that. But that's really different than what the kinds of jobs that I was given as an engineer which was 
running building energy simulations on houses that were just plopped into a housing development with no care about the orientation. And when we would run the simulations, it you could see that there, the houses that had proper orientation used less energy and were gonna be more comfortable, but nobody seemed to really care. They just said, well, we, we can't afford it. And, and so that kind of disregard for living in harmony with nature is where the heartbreak has been for me. And another example is I was designing, I was working on a, a design review manual for some housing in, um, in Hawaii. And here's another example. Here I am dedicating myself to protecting the planet and living in harmony. And in the early 80s, right after college, it was really hard to get a job at that time. There's kind of a little depression. So working at an energy efficiency consulting company, most of our contracts were with the defense industry. And so again, it was just like this perversion of my, my will, my gifts, my intention to help people live in harmony. And here at our company, we're helping the Department of Defense, which, you know, our defense budget is what, more than the next 10 countries put together or something. So, okay, <laughs> we're doing something for the Defense Department. Um, and this was some um, housing for an Air Force base in, in Hawaii. Uh, the conventional approach that we were using was measuring the insulation, the window types, the, you know, we'd do energy modeling and come up with kind of a design guidance for them. But I was like, wait, I've been to Hawaii and it's so temperate. Why are we talking about putting air conditioning in? Like, do you really need air conditioning? Because in our model, we were giving people credit for putting in a more energy efficient air conditioner. And instead what I did is I went out of my way and came up with an alternative path that says, okay, well, you know, at this time of the year, the trade winds, the winds tend to flow in this direction. And the traditional housing is already knows about this. So traditional housing is built like this and they have these big uh, sliding um, room dividers and openings and certain kinds of shading so that, so that you don't need a lot of technology in order to make it happen. But you know that wasn't something I was asked to do and I'm not sure if anybody even used it. Um, but, but that's, I think, so this is the thing that I'm saying is that Michael Moore and Jeff Gibbs, they, they shined a light on, you know, this, this thinking is limited. The idea that we can just continue everything the way we are doing and just build more and more solar and, and wind to get out of it. But they didn't have they didn't articulate how it was wrong. One of the areas that they 
shined a light on that was helpful and something that I've thought about a lot because I've worked as a solar system designer and salesperson and I've asked this question how much what is the carbon footprint of producing a solar panel and and then installing a solar panel and all the equipment and everything that goes with it and I have seen some research on that that does show it is a net positive so I believe that but also that wasn't actually something that we talked about when we were selling solar you know what all we said was you're using this amount of electricity now and coming from your coal plant or wherever it is and if you put the solar on you'll be using this amount but so even in our sales process we didn't say but if you want to know your carbon footprint you should probably deduct all of the energy that went into the mining and assembly and shipping of this device i think it's the same with electric cars that yes there's one paradigm says when you go from your gas-powered car to your electric car here's what's happening but we're we are generally not taking into account the rest of that cycle and we should be we should be doing that because when people bring these questions up, we should be able to answer them in a, in a better way. And so it points out that we're not, our accounting for the externalities is, is lacking. And this is a, a big area that we should be improving. It's just the same, like if you buy something, you buy a head of lettuce and it is wrapped in plastic, there should be some cost to whoever decide to wrap that thing in plastic, that cost should be going back to them rather than me who, who unwraps it or the city where I dispose of that. And, and so I think that's one thing that it pointed out. Many of the assumptions were wrong. As I was saying before, like a, the lifetime of a solar panel, they said is 10 years. It's more like probably 35 to 50. Um, so, that was just really poor journalism. That was just wrong to be stating things that were 100% incorrect. Um, so that was a real disservice when they did that. Um, but one of the things that I think should be talked about is that the idea of building batteries and building things that use where we're still using the extraction model. We're still doing things in an extractive way where we're going down into the depths of the earth and extracting things like iron and rare earth minerals and using high temperatures or toxic chemicals or high pressures to manufacture those. That, again, this is where I think they weren't able to say it, but that's a lot different than the solar power that a plant uses. So when you look at putting a seed in the ground and it powers itself by photosynthesis, right with all the, the chemicals that it has available to it, that is the contrast. So where we want to get is to being one of those species that does not need to have an extractive component to, to solving this problem. And so the things like the rare earth minerals 
and um, steel and all those things that are now being used up uh, as part of this process, that, that's a very valid complaint that was raised in this um, system. And one of the ways to, to look at this more is the concept of biomimicry. And Biomimicry is a book by Janine Benyus. There's also Biomimicry Institute. But the idea of biomimicry is that we as humans tend to use all the minerals on the periodic table. But nature, when nature does its chemistry, it uses very few number of chemicals. And it does most of that in ambient conditions and it's only um, fluid that it uses generally is water. So if you think she gives the idea, I'll leave the link to the um, video here. She used the example of making high-tech ceramics. So when humans make high-tech ceramics, they are generally, you imagine like a big kiln or some kind of chemical, so high temperature, high pressure, um, high and toxic chemicals. But when nature makes a high tech, a very hard ceramic, it, the, the inside of an abalone um, shell, that mother of pearl iridescent um, material is twice as tough, twice, twice as hard as most of our high tech ceramics. And it's doing it in seawater with the, the elements that are just floating by. So it has a way of making this template that has these different charged spots. And as the different minerals come in, they settle in and they self-assemble this, this super hard um, ceramic. And that's the kind of transformative thinking that, that we need. So, so that is, that's what I would do for the second part of the, the film. Is, is show how the thinking that we've been using so far has been limited to this industrial um, basis rooted in uh, these systems of oppression when nature already has the answers. So then for the third part of the film, what I would do is say, okay, well, now we know that money and power corrupts, that industrialized thinking is limited and that nature already has the answers. So what should we do? And in this part, I would show how small groups of people in their own communities are creating this transformative change without relying on their governments or big companies to, to make this. They're, they're working, they're partnering with nature. They're developing relationships with the natural environment and they're figuring out how to learn how to to live in harmony and when enough of those groups do that they have then the power to demonstrate what they're trying to tell their cities to do and they can then tell their cities you know we're able to do this much but you're blocking us here so we need you to change your policies and so here's some examples. Um, there were some folks, so during 2019, I mentored 20 some teams throughout Metro Denver. 
And through this process, each team was based in a place. So it was a faith community, a neighborhood, a school, um, some other community groups. And they just started talking, meeting with each other and talking with each other and asking, how can we do better? And each of them came up with these really beautiful ideas. Um, so there's people that have started farmers markets because they were in a food desert. There are people that uh, like that were at a faith community that started, took out grass and changed it into um, community gardens where they grow food for the poor families in their community. They grow the kind of foods that they want because most of them are from certain area in Africa and have a preference for mustard greens, collard greens, these super nutritious foods. And they work doing cooking classes so that people can get this kind of food into their diets and improve their their nutrition. Another example is somebody that's, that uh, was on one of my teams that had this idea of, hey, what about starting a neighborhood-to-neighborhood -neighborhood challenge? And so they're now doing the Denver Compost Challenge. And, you know, plastics recycling right now is, it's kind of a mess, right? Like, so, and most people think recycling, and yeah, recycling is great for, um, for cans, for paper, um, and for some plastics, but there's a big gap in knowledge with composting. And in the city of Denver, about half of what gets sent to the landfill could be composted. So there's a group of neighbors that are working together to educate other neighbors on the value of composting and how to do it. And when people say, well, I can't do it because whatever, then they troubleshoot and find an answer. So I can't do it because I'm in an apartment. Well, hey, here's a couple companies that will come pick your compost up for you. Or I can't do it because um, there's no space. Well, maybe you can talk with your neighbor and see if you can share that because the city of Denver is okay with that as long as you guys work it out. There's another part of the paradigm shift that I think needs to happen, which is not focusing so much on the whole replacing fossil fuels part of it, but instead this idea of reducing our consumption, living more in harmony with nature, and, and planting more trees. When I was doing this retreat last weekend, this act these action plan retreats that I do, um, Darwin in Zambia is working on a project to plant 10,000 trees. And Michael, Michael Alcazar is working on a project that he calls One Million Trees for Colorado to plant a million trees this year. And those are the kinds of things where it's going straight to nature and saying, okay, what would nature do? What would the solution be from nature? So this idea of people working together in their communities and coaching each other, brainstorming, what are the, what are the areas that we want to make progress in? This is actually this is the answer. And there's that wonderful Margaret Mead quote where she says, never doubt, 
that a thoughtful group of committed people can change the world because in fact that's the only thing that ever has and so that's the answer this should be the ending of the movie it's going through one story after the next of how people are are getting together and making a difference and and feeling empowered to then then understand oh we're the ones who are setting the laws we're the ones who are are giving the corporations their wealth so we have a say in this but it starts it starts as people get together make that kind of difference feel better feel more empowered and then it's a ripple effect where once they've done it in their community they then realize oh my gosh at our church or our mosque we could also be doing this kind of thing then people do it at the mosque and they're like oh wait we could be doing this in the schools and so it's this ripple so that once each of us understand that we are the experts we're the experts and that's it's so funny because when I do the wellness coaching, that's one of the things that I teach people. You are the expert on your own body. You know that if you eat certain food and you feel sick, that you did that and that you can change it. And you don't need this outer thing to figure it out. You have a feedback system that you can listen to. And it's the same in our communities. When we see that our bird population or a butterfly population or bee population is declining, we can figure out what needs to be done. We can go to the city and say, whoa, don't be penalizing people for dandelions. Actually encourage them to keep the dandelions because that's the first thing that the, the bees need in the springtime. And, and we have the, the wisdom and the the creativity, the ingenuity, the persistence, we can figure out what would be better park management processes and we can let the our cities know like it's okay if we have dandelions. We would rather have dandelions and pollinators and a safe space for our kids than have you guys worrying about spraying the weeds. And so so this is what the this is what I think the last third of this movie should have been, is this message of hope saying that if humanity, you know, honestly, at this point, it's not really clear if humanity can save itself. Um, we've, we've screwed around for way too many decades doing stupid stuff that hasn't worked. Um, but if we can break out of this colonialized thinking and as a lot of people on the summit were saying, come up with a more indigenous perspective of that. So that is, you know, making choices that are good for the next seven generations or as biomimicry and biomimicry, they say for the next 10,000 generations, making decisions that take care of the place for the next 10,000 generations, when we can start making those decisions, then we're going to, maybe we do it in time that we save humanity, but at least we're going to redeem humanity as our, our legacy as a species, that if we can turn this thing around and start 
working cooperatively and and getting back our the power of the communities then um, then we can leave a, a happy ending to this movie so um, if you're interested in figuring out ways to to start a, a team or you've you've had an issue trying to work on environmental projects before you haven't been able to get people interested in your initiatives or you've just gotten on big committees of big environmental groups and felt like man I don't know this doesn't feel like it's what I was hoping for then I hope you will reach out to me you can go to greenteamacademy.com start with green team essentials but I always have there's all kinds of stuff there's lots of episodes of the podcast um, different free trainings that I'm doing I have courses and coaching Um, I help cities who want to Uh, meet their climate action goals by figuring out how to mentor and mobilize teams. That's one of my favorite things to do. And I have a new book coming out, which is Climate Action Breakthrough, Creating the World We Want One Team at a Time. That's coming out in June 2020. If you want to be on my advanced reader crew, then just look under books um, at greenteamacademy.com. All right, thanks so much again. It's Joan Gregerson here. And remember that the time for action is now because there is no planet B. See you soon. Bye.